We live on information. Dunkin' Donuts would have you believe that America runs on Dunkin', but the truth is, the reality is, that we breathe and live on the air of data, of information. I mean, it's everywhere. Everything we do is, is saturated with info. You can't go five steps without seeing some kind of info getting thrown at you, whether it's social media or the work we do. The information age has taken over the world. It's a new revolution, different than the industrial revolution. It's an information revolution. And yet, that being said, <laughs> that being said, we can, we can gather information in a way that's totally new, that generations before us couldn't do quite as easily. Info is at the, at the, the touch of a finger, the click of a button. We can, we can know what happened in a, in a war battle 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago within seconds. We can understand the intricacies of Beethoven's fifth with the push of a button on our iPod or our, our iPad or our phone, or if you're like stuck in the Stone Age, your computer. <laughs> you know, like, isn't that amazing that the computer is almost out of date? Because information has to be readily available at all times. And though, though information is, is, is rich, there's tons of it, and it's extremely easy to access, it seems like wisdom plateaued hundreds of years ago, maybe even thousands of years ago. Albert Einstein, the physicist Albert Einstein said, information is not knowledge. And he understood, as the Bible does, that data, that info, that stuff like that isn't necessarily the application of that stuff, isn't necessarily wisdom or understanding. And our passage this morning really hits on this issue. It, it, it tries to develop this issue of wisdom. Though we have easy access to a ton of info, oftentimes our world is full of unwise people, and we are part of the problem. Well, before we get to our text, Proverbs 3, this morning, let me set the context of what Proverbs is going to be saying. If you've been um, kind of traveling with us or, or here at Christ Community for the last um, well, since January 1st, we've been doing this thing called Open Here, where we're trying to cultivate this uh, spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading. And it's been a great blessing to me and my family. Um, it's really kind of enriched our understanding of who God is and what he has done in the gospel of Jesus. I hope it has been a blessing to you. But in that, you would know that our, our sermon series are actually following the reading plans for Open Here. And so we're actually in our third um, sermon series that's focusing on biblical poetry. In the last two weeks, we've heard sermons, we've, we've, we've opened God's word and looked at the Psalms, right? We looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 103, two, two beautiful Psalms. And this week, we look into the book of Proverbs. We look into the book of Proverbs. Now, to set up Proverbs a little bit, Proverbs was written by King Solomon, as in the King Solomon who asked God for wisdom and was blessed with both wisdom and wealth. The King Solomon who, who people traveled from, from hundreds of miles away to come and hear what he would say about any given topic. They'd like to hear what he, what he thought about something, his musings, his reflections. So Proverbs was written by Solomon and collected, I should say, written and collected 
by Solomon. The purpose of Proverbs is to instill and describe wisdom in God's people. To instill and describe wisdom in God's people. The ESV Study Bible defines wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. And that's the focus of our text this morning. The focus is wisdom. The focus of all of Proverbs, the whole book of Proverbs, is wisdom. And so this morning, our text gives us three lessons on the path to wisdom. And at the end of the journey, it encourages us. And all the way through, it motivates us to seek the wisdom of Christ. To seek the wisdom of Christ. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Read with me, if you will. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Wisdom listens to the right people. Our text is set up with this, this, this fatherly wisdom, this parental wisdom where a father is speaking to his son. This is actually the third time in the first three chapters of the book of Proverbs, one of 55 times in the book of Proverbs that mentions a son. And these first three instances in Proverbs 1, 2, and 3 are all a father speaking to his son. Proverbs 1 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 2, 1 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, then it'll go well with you. And so our text this morning kind of couches wisdom in this idea, in this framework of of a wise parent speaking to a child who needs wisdom. A father who tenderly takes his son aside and lovingly says, this is what the path to life looks like. Follow me. I don't know what it is about having a baby, but since we had Myra uh, five weeks ago yesterday, praise God, oop, um, our son Owen, who's three and a half, has, has recognized, um, has, has figured out that mom and dad um, are sleep deprived, right? You have a baby and you lose sleep all of a sudden. And um, he also recognizes that like, we have less hands for how many kids are running throughout the house. And, and all of a sudden, he's started to find the little pressure points in our relationship and our authority and, and, and push on them. And, 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 and he's pushing harder than he has, ever has. And it's really fun as a parent, right? I mean, you guys, some of you guys have been there. It is really exciting when your kid really wants to like, disobey and do his own thing. But I find myself more and more, and it is a good thing, actually. I find myself more and more having to pull him aside and say, son, we've been through this before. I've shown you what this life looks like in this family. We still don't scream in the house. We still don't run in the hall. We still don't jump on the furniture. And that's what our text is, is showing us, is that wisdom has this relational aspect where it's imparted from one person to another, a wise parent, like a wise parent, to a child who needs life. Now this presents a couple promises, or a couple of problems for us. If you look at verse 2 with me, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Proverbs oftentimes kind of have this um, this blessing that's attached to a proverb. And um, 
we like to read those blessings because we read our Bibles a lot and we're going through open here. We like to read those blessings and we kind of, we, we read them as promises. But Proverbs thinks about those blessings a little differently. And so it presents a problem for us. We think of them as kind of conditional statements. If then this, right? If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. But Proverbs is less worried about promises. Proverbs illustrate principles that are to to be applied in the right situation over promises. And so instead of saying, if you do this, my son, if you follow me, my instruction, my ways, it's not guaranteeing that life is going to be easy, but it's saying, this is the way of life. This is the design of what God has given us in his word. And you are to follow, you are to obey. It doesn't promise that it will necessarily go well with you, but hopes that it will. It has a vision of the future that we can't even see. If you also look at verse 2, or excuse me, verse 1, this language of my son is is not unique to Solomon. This language of my son, a, a father speaking to a child, isn't unique to Solomon. Actually, in a lot of ancient wisdom literature... uh, a lot of ancient wisdom literature is is framed as a a father speaking directly to his son, kind of this monologue between a parent and a child. And this tells us a couple things. It tells us, one, that God isn't afraid to use the forms or the wisdom of people kind of outsiders. You know what I mean? All, All wisdom is God's wisdom. All true wisdom, I should say, is God's wisdom. God isn't afraid to take um, what a secular thinker says. If it's true, and apply it to his people. Part of the the book of Proverbs, we're pretty sure, scholars are pretty sure, parts of the book of Proverbs aren't even written by a Christian, or by part of the family of God, I should say, at this point, right? And that's why I said Solomon actually collected some of these Proverbs, because he didn't write them all, most likely. So God isn't afraid of that. Yet, God's wisdom is applied differently because God's wisdom demands an aspect of faith and we'll get to that later. So wisdom depends on who we surround ourselves with. There's this relational component to wisdom. Now we're all tempted to listen to the wrong people. All of us are tempted to listen to the wrong people. Conventional wisdom would say listen to society, listen to talk radio, listen to Dr. Phil. If you're a student, Listen to the Beebs. I don't even know who the Beebs is. I don't, why did I use that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the reality is, is that conventional wisdom often tells us to follow good people in and of themselves. I'm not trying to disparage any of those people, but for all the wrong things. And, and the Bible's trying to tell us, the Bible's trying to show us, ask us the question, who, who do you want to tether your life to and follow in everything? Who's most important in what you listen to? Jesus will say, well, we have a tendency to listen to lots of different types of people. Proverbs will give us kind of this this vision of a fool. It'll say, we have a tendency to follow people who really don't know how life is supposed to go. We can follow the fool. We can have a tendency to follow people who just affirm us in everything we already want to do, right? How many of you guys have ever done that? Surrounded yourself with people who are just going to say yes everything you say. We're going to tickle your ears. I know I've done that. Sometimes we surround ourselves with just too many voices, good voices in and of themselves. 
When I was in student ministry in Omaha before uh, going to seminary, I had a student that I was working with on, on a regular basis, um, and we had a great relationship. It was a really good kind of fruitful relationship. We would spend time every week kind of reading the Bible and praying and talking about life. He was, he was a high school guy, and it was a good deal. And I went to kind of towards the end of my time in Omaha. I went to a youth pastor's luncheon. You know, youth pastors get together and talk about ministry and, and share and pray for one another. It's a good deal. And, and after talking to a number of these different youth pastors around the Omaha area, and I'm sure all of you, except for my Carlson friends, don't appreciate that Omaha, Nebraska has almost a million people. Okay, so first break down the category that Omaha, Nebraska is 20 people. Omaha has a lot of people in it. But anyway, so meeting with these youth pastors in the Omaha area, I realized that this student of mine was meeting with five, maybe six different pastors in the Omaha area on a regular basis. Now, these guys, I, I love these guys. I knew these guys. They were wise men. It was a good thing. And yet, at some point, we have this tendency to surround ourselves with too many voices, good voices even. Then we get this kind of wisdom overflow, Overload. We can't even listen to that many voices. But the gospel, in the gospel, Jesus says, who you listen to matters. Jesus calls us out of our sin and into relationship with him. So the first person we are to listen to is always Jesus. And that's relatively clear. We follow him first. We listen to his word. But Jesus gave us the church so that we would have a wise group of people around us. People that we could follow in the way of wisdom. Think about Paul and Timothy. Paul's on his missionary journeys. He meets this new young convert, and he takes him under his wing. He takes him with him as he's setting up churches throughout kind of the Mediterranean, teaching him the ways of the faith. Paul talks about Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, this is why I sent you Timothy. He's talking to the Corinthians. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul had been rearing Timothy in the gospel, in the wisdom of Christ, so much so that he could send Timothy to the Corinthians and Timothy could impart that wisdom to them. Think about Titus 2, where it says that that older men are to shepherd the hearts of younger men in the way of the gospel, and older women likewise to younger women. Proverbs frequently asks the question, who are you hanging out with? Who are you listening to? Who do you surround yourself with? In your workplace, who's influencing how you speak to those around you, how you speak to your boss, how you speak to people who are lower than you on the org chart? In school, who's influencing how you speak to your teachers? Maybe your teachers, how do you speak about your teachers when they're not around? How do you speak about the lunch ladies? I love lunch ladies, but people can be mean to lunch ladies. Amen? <laughs> at Leewood, I have two. I know two people at Leewood that are lunch ladies, so they would have been like, amen! <laughs> Apparently, we don't have any in Olathe. In the home, who's influencing how you treat your spouse and how you raise your kids? Who's speaking into those relationships? Are we in community groups? And if we are, how are those people actually speaking truth and wisdom into your life? Are you letting them speak into your life? Are you actually telling them what's going on in your life so that they can speak into your life? 
Or is it all just surface level fluff? Solomon tells us here, as a father to a son, that wisdom listens to the right people. Let's look now at our second lesson. Pick up with me in verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Wisdom depends on the Lord. Wisdom depends upon the Lord. At first glance, verses 3 and 4 kind of look like they're generally about these, these good things of steadfast love and faithfulness. Kind of general principles that the Bible talks about often and thinks about. But the original reader or the original hearer of this text... Would have, been, would have been triggered. Their ears would have perked up when they heard some of these words because they're pointing to a text, to an event that's extremely important in Israel's history. In Exodus 34, the people of God had just been kind of judged um, because as Moses goes up the mountain and he receives, you know, he's receiving instruction from the Lord, they kind of get antsy and they... they, they they melt down their boondoggles and their, and their gold and, they, and they, um, they create this golden calf that they can worship and manipulate, right? And God judges them and Moses is like throwing tablets all over the place and people are, are weeping and there's probably gnashing of teeth and it's, it's this crazy event. But God in his mercy, God in his mercy in Exodus 34 comes back and says, you know what? I'm going to renew my covenant with this people. And he says, as he's renewing this covenant... As he's renewing this covenant with his people, he says this. After giving Moses two new tablets, two new tablets, he says this as he passes by Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The same two words. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses responds to the Lord as the voice of the people, as the intermediary between God and man. He responds to the Lord and says, If now I have found favor, or we have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. We are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. This passage is pointing God's people back to Exodus 34, back to this covenant renewal, back to the Lord himself. For the people of God, this passage is highlighting the character of of our Lord and Savior. Wisdom depends upon the Lord. Now verses 5 through 8 
are really kind of expounding on the verse that was read earlier by Dana, verse 1-7, Proverbs 1-7. Proverbs 1-7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's developing kind of this, this same idea, verses 5 through 8-R. And it says this, this word in verse 7, or this phrase, fear the Lord. This is a relational term. So it's hitting on the relational piece again, fear the Lord. But fear of the Lord is just kind of the Old Testament's way of saying those who believe in God through Christ, those who trust in the Lord. There's this, this faith component. And then Solomon juxtaposes our faith against faith in God. Maybe I should say our faith in ourselves versus our faith in God. He says, trust in the Lord. Don't lean in your own understanding. Acknowledge him. Be not wise in your own eyes. Turn away from evil. James 1 picks up on this faith idea that, that, that wisdom has a faith component and says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So wisdom has this faith component. But faith almost doesn't do it justice because the language here is of reliance. It's, it has this, this dependence, this utter and total dependence. My new daughter Myra could not live very long without my wife or me, more her than me. She's utterly dependent on us. She can't move. I mean, she can move, but she can't like walk. She can't feed herself. She can't change herself. She's utterly dependent. And that's what this text is getting at, this picture of our helplessness in light of who God is and what he has done. Wisdom is rooted in our faith in God, the God who extends steadfast love and mercy to sinners like you and like me. Our temptation is to lean on our own understanding. Conventional wisdom would say, you know what's right and wrong best. You decide. Our sinfulness tells us that our understanding of a situation or of how to live life is the best way and not just me, but each and every single one of us can have our own understanding of our own understanding. But the Bible is going to push back really hard against that and say, you know what? Trust in the Lord. The gospel, in the gospel, Jesus confronts sin. He calls it what it is. Direct disobedience to him, against him and his word. What's more is the gospel will say left to our own devices, left to our own ways, left to our own understanding. We would be eternally separated from our creator. Is that wisdom? 1 Corinthians says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To some, the gospel is weakness. To others, the gospel is foolishness. But in the gospel, 
foolishness is wisdom. Who would ever say that through the death of one man, many would be saved? Who would ever say that God himself would come down from heaven in the form of a man, perfectly sinless, would be betrayed, would be beaten, would be hung on a cross and left there for dead for those who did it to him? Is it wise that God would die for the people who would do that for, for, to him? That he would die for them? That he would then offer eternal life to them if they did nothing but believe? For in the gospel, the foolishness of men becomes the wisdom of God. Our Father here, the Father here, helps us see that wisdom depends upon the Lord. Let's look at our third lesson, verses 9 through 12. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Wisdom negotiates life's ups, ups and downs. Wisdom negotiates life's ups and downs. Like a whitewater endeavor, life is full of, of, of times of tranquility and times of turmoil. And, and if you haven't suffered from hardship or loss, it's probably just because you haven't lived long enough. And in no way do I want to be flippant about that reality. But the Bible says that God is actually the giver of both the ups and the downs. Let's look at the ups first. In verses 9 and 10, we kind of read what it says, honor the Lord with your wealth. There's this idea that a heart that is wise, essentially, is generous with what we have. But more specifically, it talks about first fruits. And this idea of first fruits is when um, farmers, when, when, when agriculturalists would plant their crops, right? They would, um, there'd be a time of waiting, you know, a time of fasting, essentially, fasting, waiting for this crop to come in. And when, when the harvest was ready and the first fruits, the first produce, the first crops were ready to harvest, God's people would give those over by his command, give those over to the Lord, back to God's people. They would give the first fruits of what they reaped back to the Lord because those first fruits were kind of a symbol of God's provision and what was to come. And so, practically, that looks like us giving from the top of what we earn. Giving from all of which we have, not just what's left at the bottom of the barrel at the end of the day. Essentially, that means giving before we give back to the government. We don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. But it's what this passage, I think, is saying. It's relatively clear. And so, on top of that... When we look at the downs, verses 11 through 12, it talks about, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Be weary of his reproof. It's talking about this, this, when things are down, recognize who's actually making things hard. For those who are in Christ, things aren't just going to be Pollyannish. They're not going to be hunky-dory. Things will be hard. Christ has given us that, that, that truth. 
that hardship will come our way in a fallen world, not because God doesn't love us, but because he does. But because he does. Our temptation is to lean on our, excuse me, our temptation is to forget the giver of all good things. Our temptation is to forget the giver, but the gospel comes back and cries out with Job and says, the Lord is the one who takes and the one who gives away. Gives and takes away. (laughs) Simple enough. Messed it up. The gospel tells us to give. Tells us to give of what we have. That we're to be marked people. People marked by generosity. Kids, this doesn't mean just your parents who might earn a living. If you get allowance, it could be something like that. It could just be from the stuff you have. It doesn't have to be money. Please hear me say, it's not only money. We're to give of everything we have. A church we went to in Illinois would often say, this is catchy, um, would often say, a tithe is a good floor, but a really bad ceiling. And that's hard to hear because we don't want to give away our money. But when we recognize who the giver of all good things is, when we recognize that everything is actually his first, it helps us understand. It helps us put this wisdom in perspective. And when hardship comes, the gospel points us back to the one who gives all things. The author of Hebrews, whoever that person was, quoted these last two verses of the Bible. Quoted these last two verses of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And in that quotation, he links um, the discipline of Jesus as he's heading to the cross with God's discipline of his people in everyday life. He says this in Hebrews 12. He, being God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The gospel points the people of God back to the one who brings us into hard times that we might actually grow in our holiness. Once again, a really hard thing to hear. And I don't want to be flippant with this truth. But that's what Hebrews would say to us, and that's what Proverbs 3 is saying to us. Friends, wisdom is bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus listened to his Father. He depended upon his Father. He negotiated the triumphs and the trials of life perfectly. He did all of this so that those of us who want to seek his wisdom can do so if we lean on him, if we depend on him, if we helplessly say, We don't want to to listen to our own understanding. We want to follow your ways. 